Hello and welcome to the remaining sane, finding peace in our chaos podcast, a podcast about both theology and police work. I'm your host, Will, and today's episode is the second installment in a special series with apologist and philosopher Mark Coppinger. Welcome to the second episode of the series with Mark Coppinger. Just a reminder, Mark is a retired lieutenant colonel in the Army and has uh, quite a few degrees. And one of the things uh, that Mark and I talked about in the first episode is the existence of God. Uh, we've, we, we briefly covered a few points on the existence of God. You know, obviously we're not going to sit here and, and hash out every little thing. But the, the second thing that is really, uh, please forgive me for the pun, but is crucial for uh, what we're talking about is the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross. Mark, would you mind, let's say you're not even familiar with the resurrection. What is this event? And then let's, let's go from there. Well, by the way, Jesus spoke about it during his ministry, and, and his disciples didn't understand what in the world is going on here. Like, you know, you got to be kidding, or that's too vague. But he, he basically said that he would have to die, and that he would uh, rise on the third day. And it's like, what in the world uh, is this about? But And it's uh, actually part of the basic preaching of the early church, that he died and was in the grave. And by the way, uh, one of the theories that was floating around when I was in grad school in the 70s was the swoon theory. They had uh, a new version of the book uh, of the theory called the Passover plot. And so, but when you're there three days, you didn't just swoon, you know. It's it's not as though he, he kind of went into shock for a while and they put in the cool place and he cooled down and so forth, but he was really dead. And by the way, they didn't have to be super sophisticated to know dead back there. Romans knew dead, you know. Uh, it's not as though they did some DNA, failed to do some DNA test or something like that. He was genuinely dead, and then he uh, rose on the third day, and it was seen by hundreds of people who test, attested to his, uh, his living, and then he uh, ascended after a time uh, to heaven. But yeah, it's it's pretty remarkable. Now he had raised people from the dead, Lazarus and and the like. But Ra- Lazarus had to die again. You know, he had to die twice. But Jesus uh, did not die again. But it's a big part of the. It's in the Gospels. In fact, I think uh, I forget the percentage, but I think like literally thirty three percent of the Book of John, the Gospel of John, is devoted to the last week. Uh, you know, the la- uh, post resurrection and so or resurrection. Yeah. So, Mark, what are a couple of the criticisms or just you know some of the arguments that you've encountered in your past against the the resurrection? Maybe starting with the spoon theory, yeah. you know, what that is, and then going from there. Yeah, I mean, I, it it was really hot in the in the seventies when I was in grad school, but it goes back longer than that. And the the notion was that somehow, rather, he went into shock or got the vapors or or got disoriented or loss of blood, and but he was able in the cool of the tomb to recoup and come back out and uh some have even said that it was designed that way that he was given some kind of potion and you know so he could really pull this trick off and and the like so there's that uh there are others i mean i, I jotted a few down incidentally one of the guys I, it was fun i went back to the old evidence that demands a verdict by by um 
Josh McDowell, who represented Campus Crusade for Christ when it was called that before Crew. And when I was teaching at Vanderbilt, they brought him to, to campus, uh, Campus Crusade did, and I had him in my class, and he and he spoke, and then I've had his son, uh, Sean, in class. And I went back to that old book from essentially the 70s, I guess, or 60s. He has a wonderful section on all the different uh, counter things. I mean, there, there are other things. Grudem has done some stuff, and then Doug Grotas, and... So yeah, people can list these things, but one was the one was the theft thing that the apostles somehow either bribed the soldiers uh, or pulled some kind of you know trick on them and and stole the body and said, "Ah, oh, he's risen." Uh, others say, "Let me see." You have the hallucination theory that uh, Jesus' appearance when he supposedly came out of the grave was just this mass hallucination and people were deluded and hallucinated. And and uh, I don't know whether it was like a Princess Leia or something, some hologram projection or what the theory was. But boy, it's hard to have a mass hallucination that extends all that kind of time. Another was they went to the wrong tomb. Uh, you know, someone says, he's not here. And they, uh, and so they, oh, okay, well, he's risen. And they ran away before he could say, oh, he's over there. Uh, that's really fairly desperate stuff to make this happen. There is so much attestation to this that, uh, you know, you, you talk about the death of a variety of ancient people. I mean, whether you're talking about, you know, Pericles or uh, even like a, character like King Arthur or whatever, this this thing has so much attestation. So many people have written about it. Uh, they were very concerned about it. They were even trying to cover it up because they believed it was a true thing. Um, but there, there are a variety of things that say, that ain't going to fly. I mean, I, I really do think it's it's almost the guys were like real slick lawyers. They were thinking, we, we have got to prove that he's dead. And so what do we got? What do we got? And so they'll just say anything. They'll argue anything. But the very desperation of some of these things is just, it, it just should embarrass the, uh, the uh, what do you call it, the prosecutor or the defense. Like, really? You want to try the swoon theory on that? Pretty lame stuff. I know that the theories that you're talking about were, were pretty big um, in the, you know, you're talking about the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And then I, I think that they they made their way, maybe redone with, with the rhetoric in the, in the early 2000s. Yeah. Oh, really, yeah, it's never yeah. going to go yeah. away. I mean, that's that's something you've just got to kill. I mean, if you're going to be against Christianity, uh, you, you can't say, well, uh, it's not true because Jesus got angry and he slapped somebody in Galilee who mistakenly so he's not perfect i mean no this this is the one that you have really got to got to go after and so they do everything they can to put it down so yeah it'll never it'll never go away uh certainly the devil wants to deny it there there are a variety of pretty simple answers that you can give to this i'll just throw some out we can talk about about others but uh, I, I was reading in one of the books, and it says, Charles Colson, who became a Christian after Watergate, you know, the Nixon thing, he said, we had 10 guys who were trying to keep the lid on this thing that we had, in fact, he'd lied on something or other. He said, we couldn't keep those 10 guys straight. You know, they, we started to spill and this and that. He said, to get the disciples who were supposed to have known that he really didn't get out of the grave, to get them to keep the lid on it. I mean, there's so many leaks and and and, and the like. You can't keep that 
as a secret, the swoon thing, it would have gotten out. And so just the very improbability of that. Also, he says people don't die for a lie. Um, and, and by the way, the, the thing is, if Jesus died and he stayed dead, then how come they were so happy and bold and sacrificial? Uh, I mean, you, you have a variety of religious leaders and theorists, I mean, Confucius and Muhammad and others, and they're dead. You can go visit their tomb. I was in Khartoum, Sudan, doing some work, and here's the Mahdi, who was supposed to be kind of a Muslim messiah, and he was fighting the colonialists and the like. Well, you go to the Mahdi's tomb, and people go, and they sob against it and put currency in the lattice work and all that stuff, and there's no place to do it. Uh, by the way, the whole Da Vinci Code thing is sort of, uh, that's a modern thing, with thanks to Tom Hanks and others or whoever, you know, were, was it, yeah, it was Hanks, was it? No, it was, it was, um, uh, oh, who was in? Who was doing the Da Vinci Code stuff? Don't um, ask me. I know zero oh, things I, about movies. Yeah, um, it was somebody else. Anyway, it wasn't Hanks. Uh, but they're pushing this sort of thing. Oh, yeah, you go to the Priory of Zion, and um, you know, uh, and and so we're going to turn it. We're going to turn up this, or here's the by. By the way, they would. I've been to the. Um, uh, place up uh, run by the Metropolitan Museum of Art up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and they um, they had the cloisters, and they have all this medieval stuff, and they have reliquaries. Reliquaries are boxes that may have a face on it, but inside is like a the shin bone of so and so, or oh here's here's like a splinter from the cross, and and they and to have that, and and yet we don't have any of this stuff with Jesus. Like here's Jesus' bones, but they keep trying to say, oh yeah, this is a cover up. But but yeah, I I mean the big thing is the th- that came out of this was just a worldwide movement, and people were joyfully martyred. I mean, if we were kind of if we we're trying to cover up something in American politics. Um, I mean, whether you want to say it's it's Trump or it's Biden or it's this or that, and we know this is the truth, we're going to cover it up. But for somebody, they typically would cover it up because they, they have prestige involved in it, or they'll lose their position or their deal or whatever. But when to cover it up, and then you face martyrdom, and you do it gladly, what is that? And for them with great energy and fruitfulness throughout the years to to just persist, persist, and, and you know, you stone Stephen, and the next thing you know, the churches exploded all over the place. And so a lot of the argument against that is that these people, if they knew that Jesus had not come out of the grave, they would not have done what they did, just the very fact of the church. And by the way, there was a great explosion after uh, after Muhammad di- uh, died, and they're all over the place, and they're mount their horses, and they're chasing all over, but they were doing it aggressively, like this is the this is the way everybody else is an infidel, and we've got to do it. So they mount up with their horses and their swords and doing that. What we did was they killed him, and then all of a sudden we're nobodies, and we're chased all around, and we're being stoned and persecuted, and we joyfully go all over the world, and we spread this thing, and we or we're martyred. And it's not like we went out with a sword. We went out to face the sword and, and did it with gladness where people are singing hymns. So what in the world is that? What kind of knucklehead operation would come out of a big failure? Yeah, why, why do you stay in the village as Nero's is to- tossing fire yeah. on you? Yeah, yeah. It's like, exactly. And by the way, some people say, well, I'm a deist or a theist or I'm this or that. I believe in God. 
and yet this is this is too weird. And I'm thinking these are some of the people who have trouble with Jonah. Like, no, it couldn't have fallen because whales have baleen and they filter out and again, you couldn't live inside. Look, if he's God and he created the universe and everything in it, he could put a uh, a couch and a big screen TV in a fish if he wanted to. And he could, I mean, so you're saying God who created humanity and God who's Lord of everything couldn't like raise his son from the dead what what you think you're just hacking on christianity no you're hacking on theism what what strikes me especially about jesus but you know the, the resurrection is the culmination of you know jesus's life and then comes back well i guess the, the, jesus ain't dead let's <laughs> start with start, start with that the the something changes when jesus yeah. dies and comes back you know the resurrection is is the big change right yeah, yeah. One of the things that, that strikes me is that a lot of the, the great messiahs of other world religions, I think of Joseph Smith mm-hmm. uh, as, a, as a good example yeah. of this, yeah. that a lot of them go out for personal glory mm-hmm. or unfortunately for the ability to have multiple wives or you know marry someone who's yeah. seven six, five, whatever years old. Yeah. Um, and it's not, and you know, as I'm saying this, and if you're a Muslim or if you're a Mormon or if you're, um, whatever, no, I don't believe that you're a pedophile or I don't believe that, you know, you're a bad person. I'm I'm not trying to cast Mm -hmm. stones and say that, you know, these people are bad people. I'm trying to say is that Jesus is the only one that doesn't walk out trying to become more famous or have more glory or get or come up, come away with gold and raise armies, mm-hmm. right? Joseph yeah. Smith raised armies. <laughs> yeah. There was actual, you know, militia that he had in, in New York. I lived in Kansas city, by the way. And, and they were also saying, this is part of this. Missouri is our place too. And the farmers got anxious and chased them to Utah, but they were not just sitting around singing hymns. They were tough guys. Yeah. Interesting. Well, yeah, I just, again, I just think what what part of omnipotent, omniscient, you know, omnip- omnibenevolent, what part of that don't you understand if God is all that? Why is this an issue? You know, or some say, oh, it didn't really part the, back in the Exodus, didn't part the sea, you know, that was really a tidal thing, and they were up at the narrow end, and then like, why is that hard for God to part the sea? So to me, it's almost a failure of theistic faith if you've got a, a problem with this kind of thing. It's it's bizarre. By the way, one thing, you know, Jesus said, I've got to go because a comforter's coming, and you have Pentecost and the Holy Spirit. And transformed lives are a testimony to Christ. I was looking at the through the hymn book, and we have arguments against against Jesus staying dead. And one is, you know, I serve a risen Savior, he's in the world today, and know that he is living, whatever men may say. And he lives within my heart, you know. I mean, we say there's that experience. Uh, he, I just know he lives because he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And we, we just, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. We're not saying like a deistic thing, like that was great what he did, you know, and now we're on our own. People say that there is a encouraging counseling transforming thing that happens um you know regeneration it's it's kind of like we were 
uh, velour and we become denim, or we were naugahyde and we become linen or something. There is a change in our very fabric, and people see it. Uh, I'll go back to high school and college reunions, and there'd be some guys who pretty tough customers. I mean, they, they'd get drunk and then put it in the wrong gear and drive into the side of the Dairy Queen and oops, sorry. And they, they were, uh, tough, tough customers. I mean, we go off to ROTC summer camp and some of them might away from Baptist school would, would at, at night go down the beer tent and get to singing dirty songs or something like that. And you think, wow. And now you go back and all they can talk about is Jesus. And you say, what happened to you? And it's like, well, you know, in 19 such and such, I met this girl and she took me to church and then I found the Lord. And now there, it's the, it's the change. And then I mentioned before, it's the, the impact around the world and all the charities. You mentioned the hospitals. You have Covenant this and Swedish that and St. Francis here in town and Baptist Hospital. And so you got all that. And then you have universities. I mean, you have like Harvard and Princeton and, and Yale. And these were started for religious religious reasons so did so did Vanderbilt where I went so did Northwestern and 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 then after a while the people become secularized and you you just hand it off to the culture and say there enjoy you've 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 compromised it enough it's yours you know but and we start new ones but you all around the world there are the fingerprints of, of a living Christ and to say he's dead. And also, there's such a, what we call verisim, verisimilitude. There's a truth likeness to the accounts. It's not this vaporous sort of thing and then springing from the head of Zeus and then the, you know, coming out of the sea, shell, the sea on a half shell. And No, it's like this is very gritty. Here are these guys. They're standing at the cross. They do this sort of thing. They put the crown they stab him. They do this. Here's what a throne. Yeah, this is what a tomb's like. This is what happened. It's just like this is this is narrative. You want to get into that? You want to? Yeah, I could. I, I could do that. I will say this too. You say yeah, but that's the the Bible talking about that. You know. Oh yeah, you're quoting the Bible, and so that's why you're doing it. Well, no, no. That's why it's in the Bible. I mean, the church, you know, it's like, yeah, well, you're citing it. Yeah, why is it in? Why is this testimony in the Bible? Because people looked at it and said, yeah, this is what happened. So um, I just, it, it just smacks of truth, you know. Well, do you want to take a pause? Um, we can go get a Bible or whatever material you want, and we can like go through some of this if that's okay. Yeah, we could do that. Yeah, sure, let's do that. Sure. Okay. All right. Okay, and we're back. So, Mark, as police officers, one of the things that we do is we like really want to dig in and try to find the truth of like what actually happened, right? And we can't do that in twenty minutes. But what are a couple of places where you know if we really want to investigate this, where we can start? Yeah, you know, it's a classic book, uh, but I have this evidence that demands a verdict uh, by Josh McDowell, and he goes way back. Um, and chapter 10 is on the resurrection, hoax, or history. And it goes on and on, and it talks, it cites the scripture. It's in all the gospels. Uh, so I remember one guy said, 
uh, over in Germany was saying, well, you know, the virgin birth, it's only in one or two of the Gospels. You know, like that makes a difference. How many times do I have to say it for it to be true? But this is in all the Gospels in great detail. And it wasn't though Jesus got ambushed or something. Like, whoa, what, what happened? Can he make, can he kind of recover from this? He had talked about it all the way through again and again. And, um, and so anyway, it's all, it's just germane to the whole New Testament. But he goes through this testimony and then he goes through uh, the claims that Christ would be raised from the dead. Yeah, he, he talks about how he said it, but then he has the early church writers and he has Eusebius and and um, uh, Josephus, who was not friendly. I mean, he was he was a Jewish writer who was actually writing for the Romans, so he didn't. It's in his interest to sort of play it down, but uh, it's attested that he actually said, "Hey, this thing happened. What's going on?" So the, he quotes from all these early church people, Ambrose, and then Simon Greenleaf later on, and he goes through that the historical account. By the way, you know it does. In, in terms of testimony, um, a number have said testimony like this would convict anything, would convict anybody. If he appeared to all these witnesses and, and they saw this and saw that and people write about it and they die for it and stuff, you'd have to say, whoa. They've done some interesting things. A number of lawyers have analyzed the trial of Jesus. You know, was that fair and stuff? Then others have written about some great works about, and some have actually, atheists have tried to disprove it. They say, oh, I'm going to do this thing, ha ha, empty tomb, da da da. And then they get into it and they go, oops, I can't pull this off. I can't, I can't disprove it. Uh, I saw an AMA journal article on the physiology of the crucifixion. How did he die? You know, what about being suspended here and loss of blood and shock and so forth? They have gone through this. So much. The circumstances here, Josh talks about the circumstances at the scene of the tomb. He goes on to talk about uh, the, the influence of what came afterwards. It's just page after page after page of, of this account. Uh, you know, the barrel, does it fit the Roman pattern? Does this thing ring true or is it a knucklehead sort of thing? Um, and then he gets into uh, the post-resurrection scene. How many people did he appear to? What was going on? What was going on? And it just goes on. The position of the stone. Was it rolled away? Was it this? How about the bedclothes? Were they folded up? Were they not? And, and then the idea, like, were the soldiers, would they have been bribed? I mean, they were supposed to guard this. They would have been put to death. You can't pay somebody enough to die for a lie uh, this way. And so it's and, – and here's another one uh, – Here's Douglas Grutheis, and he, he has uh, a chapter on this. And then I was looking at the Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics, Norman Geisler. Uh, there are other theories, by the way. You know, nothing is foolproof because fools are so ingenious. And so some say, oh, well, actually, God just destroyed the body and took it away. In fact, it was empty because God just, you know, and, and they'll do anything under the sun. But there is that sense of plausibility. Um, you know, what, what in, in philosophy of science, we talk about the hypothetical deductive method, and we talk about falsifiability. And, and so let's, let's just say, I'll give you a simple example from science. There was a retrograde motion in Mars. These guys would get up 
on the battlements and look out with their telescopes or whatever, their sighting instruments in Babylon. And they would see Mars at 9.30 at night is right there in the sky. And then they'd mark it down on a sky map. And the next day it'd be there and it's moving and moving like, uh-oh, now it's gone backwards. Dun, 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 dun. And on successive nights, Mars going backwards and then it turns around and it goes forward and it goes forward. Well, they had a theory back then that everything in the heavens was circular or, or, or global, you know, a globe sort of thing. And this is like an elliptical loop in performance. And they think, what in the world? How could this be? Uh, and, and so they, some, they later found out it had to do with, with our passing Mars in our, in our circuit around the sun. And as you pass it, it slows down because we overca- overtake it. And then as we get farther away, then it starts its normal progression. It's good to retrograde. But it has to do with the progression of the planet. And the planets would actually go elliptically. They'd slingshot around the sun and go out. Well, the old guys said, no way. It's got to be circles. So they invented these things called equants, eccentrics, and... and, um, and epicycles. That's a long word. Yeah, there are three <laughs> things started with E. And basically, you know how you can take a, you see it in a clown car in a circus parade sometimes. You put the put the axle off center and the, the tire, the car goes bump to bump to bump to bump like that. Or, you know, you can make, if you put a dark room and you put a circle off center and a circle and another circle with the axle off and you turn the light out, put a dot on the outside and set it, then you can get this whirly gig motion, but it's all circles. So they came up with this most exotic account of how it's really circles, even though it looks elliptical. That's so exhausting. But by George, they're going to keep their theory. And what we're seeing here is exotic, strange accounts. Like they went to the wrong tomb. Oh, really? They didn't have a clue where the tomb was? Oh, okay. Knock yourself out, Skippy. And so we come up with essentially the simplest account. Like, no, he was dead. And then he got up, and he got out of the tomb, and the soldiers, they, they, you know, blacked out or something like this. But it's just implausible. I mean, you do the sort of thing when you're in court. You have one account of things, another account of things. Uh, and it's like, okay, which is the most plausible? Yeah, we work in, in uh, conviction beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah, right? yeah. The burden of proof is on you, but still, you have to prove it. And there's that old joke, uh, like, are you going to believe uh, Are you gonna believe me or your lying eyes? <laughs> you know, like the guy walked in the bedroom, shot this person, like, yeah, but no, I really, well, I saw it. So this is the simplest, the simplest kind of account. And the other stuff looks really sweaty and kind of desperate. Uh, and you say, well, if you, if you, you, of course you've got to do that. I mean, I even think about evolution. Now we can, we, people disagree on this sort of stuff, but, but still the whole account of how you get from primi- primordial swamp into, uh, you know, Shakespeare's works, really, you're saying it's a mutation. I see. So there's this thing bubbling around there and then something happens. And then later on you get a little sensitive eye bud and then that develops into an eye. Well, you know, mutations generally aren't so good. It's not like you're in the waiting room, your wife comes out and, and the, and the doctor comes out and says, Oh, good news. You've got a mutant, you know, or something like, no, no. So you have to have an advantageous, advantageous, you know, <laughs> mutation. So that little eye bud might could help, or maybe that extra finger could help palm a basketball or something. But I've watched Animal Planet, and you have all these little uh, newborn 
uh, turtles scurrying to the ocean, trying to make it to the ocean, and these birds come and they feast on them. So let's say you wait 8,000 years to get a slightly advantageous mutation, and then who's to say that the bird or the alligator won't get it or whatever? Now, oh no, we got to start. Now we need another 10,000 years. And to make that whole thing work and then give yourself billions of years to make it work, it's like, really? You think that's how it happened? And even even secularists are saying, this ain't going to work. I mean, I think Jerry Fodor uh, at MIT said, you can't get here uh, from there. And then you have um, one of the Nagels that Alvin Plantinga dealt with, and they're just saying, how do you make the leap from matter to consciousness? And they keep going. But these people are so, so the analogy is this. <clears throat> so you're going to hang on to this swoon thing, or you're going to say that a whole bunch of people sat on the lie and then they gave their lives up and they to expand that. Yeah, does that happen? Can you give me an example of how that has happened in the world? I don't think so. <laughs> so, it, it, look, there's no photograph of the thing. Here's Jesus coming. Of course, we deny, skeptics deny the photograph. You know, it's been photoshopped or they didn't have cameras or whatever. But you just say. The shroud of Turin didn't exist. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. yeah well, there's that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so you just say. Instead of being cowed by saying, wow, yeah, I guess I haven't seen a resurrection in Nashville in the last 20 years, so those can't happen, I guess, you know, and, oh, well, let me see, let me try. And it's as though <coughs> we're trying to put on a little show for the skeptics, and it's like, why do we, why is the burden on us? I mean, here are a bunch of people, what, what, other, what other historical account, and whether it's Herodotus or whatever, do you doubt? I mean, they'll say, and the, you know, the Medeans did this and that, and yours. Oh, we found it. There's a little inscription. Now we know. You know, they came this way. You take little scratchings, and you say, well, that's how, that's how it had to be. That's how Saladin proceeded, or whatever. Like really? So you're going to fall all over that, or you're going to find a skull fragment somewhere in the Old Divide Gorge in Kenya, and say, now we know this is how man started. And like, you're going to take bone fragments, scratchings writings of people who are probably biased and you're going to go with that and yet here we have all this testimony and all the reasonableness of the whole bible account and by the way does jesus seem like a liar or does paul seem to be the kind of guy who years after the crucifixion and resurrection would say yeah close enough i'll buy that and then he'll go out and <laughs> really do you think that account is uh is plausible so i'm just saying to the others like what have you got what's your argument against it i mean unless you're begging the question well you know this is miraculous so again well you don't think god can do miracles what what are you saying so i just you know i don't spend a whole lot of time worrying about their skepticism over it it's like look of course you the bible says you've got a darkened heart and and you resist you resist the stuff, but boy, it seems to me once you believe God is who he is, it's an easy step to say Jesus, he could raise Jesus. One of the things that Chesterton says in The Everlasting Man is he makes a uh, he makes this realization that he was the only person, actually believed in God, was a God-fearing person. There was some conference or some get-together of a bunch of academic bigwigs. He, one of the things that he noticed is that everyone had some kind of superstitious trinket on them they had some kind of like interesting you know like lucky sock or right, a uh, right. like a lucky wristband or you know something small and you know, he said that 
I mm-hmm. didn't have one of these. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, you know, I've got God. I don't need. Yeah, I don't that, need my lucky. I don't need good. my. Don't need my my lucky uh, watch. That's good. They would all accuse him of believing in crazy stuff and believing yeah. in superstition and things that aren't real. When they're the ones that are believing in things that we know are not lucky. Yeah, we know are not. Yeah. You know, not correct. And, and so it's not that these people aren't spiritual or you know don't believe in. And they have have like a, a resistance to um, the supernatural. Yeah, yeah, they just have a resistance to Jesus right. Christ who died on the cross. Right. And by the way, having been a pastor uh, and uh, for years and preaching through the Bible, I find that people quite often push back against the plain teaching of the Bible. I mean, whether it's divorce and remarriage, or whether it's you know, giving generously or whatever, that they, it irritates them. And so what they do is they make God in their own image. I mean, they will literally say, well, my God wouldn't ask me to do such and such and the, and the like. And, and so what we do is we create our little gods or our substitute for gods. And it is scary to, to just say, oh, I'm going to be a Bible person and, uh, and put it on the line. You know, I was thinking, uh, I was in seminary in Texas, and, and a couple of times I've been to San Antonio, and I go to the Alamo. And you remember remember the Alamo? That was the big thing. Santa Ana came through and, and, uh, and wiped these guys out. And by the way, here we are, the volunteer state, because we sent volunteers, including Davy Crockett, you know, who died in the Alamo. And what did they do with... You know, remember the remember the Alamo. They got fired up and they met the Mexican army at San Jacinto and wiped them out. And in fact, I think there were war crimes maybe in some of that. And they have a monument there now that's bigger than the Washington Monument. It's huge. But anyway, remember the Alamo. Like, remember the crucifixion. Yeah, you know, let's get fired up. I know that it's sketchy about whether he rose from the dead, but we're fired up. Now let's go out and whoop some Romans. That's the that's that's our remember stuff, you know. Remember the Maine; they sank, sank it in Manila Harbor, and let's no, you know. But now it's like remember the crucifixion and the resurrection. Now let's go out and whip somebody. No, let's go out and put our lives on the line and and be martyrs. You know, in the catacombs, I've been in catacombs in Italy, the old tombs where they would hide out, and then they would make signs of the fish for, you know, ichthus, Jesus Christos, huias, soter, son of God, huias, theos, soter. Anyway, but they have the phoenix in there, and that's one of the things they mark, and it's that mythical bird that rose, you know, from the fire. From the ashes. From the ashes, and they appropriated that, just like they appropriated the evergreen for the Christmas tree and so forth, and they said... Our, our guy rose from the ashes, and so we have a hope of rising from the ashes. And, I, you know, again, the hymns, like, I serve a risen Savior, he's in the world today, I know that he's living, whatever men may say. And, and that's part of our singing. It's, it's hugely important. And who do we pray to, you know, through Christ? So I, I'm thinking it's a package. Uh, it's a narrative, like what's going on? And what a sad thing it is to say, eh, nothing much. And you know, as we you know sing these songs and you know worship God, we become part of the same story yes. that the rest of the you know, the Christians are in, right? Yes. yes. Um, even more so if you know we suffer yeah. for Christ, right? Uh, that is 
and, and you know, there's a huge parallel here with police work, right? You yeah. know, you go out there and put your life on the line, right? Right, and you don't do it. You don't become a cop because you want money or because you, or you may become a cop. You think it looks cool, but you're not going to lose your life for that. <laughs> yeah, you may get killed, but you won't lose your life for that. It if you know what you're why you're doing it, then and those motivations are good. Wanting to protect others, wanting to serve the community that you're living in. Yeah. That, that Those are the motivating factors, right? Yeah. In the same way that we have motivating factors to, if I, I pray that I would have the courage one day, if deny Christ or get your head chopped off, yeah. that I would choose the latter. Yeah. yeah. Right. And sometimes they say the, the, you know, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And, um, just like, look, it's not, uh, yeah, I, I use this example sometimes for biblical joy. Um, you know, joy is, as I said earlier, the sense that God's up to something and you're part of it. So let's say you're in the Circus Maximus or you're in the Colosseum and they turn the lions on you. And so there you are, you got 20 guys from your church and the lions are about to get you. And you think that's a pretty miserable time. Like, oh, it ain't going to work. You know, this is, a, this is, but you think, you know, I bet there's some kids on the back row there who might turn to their dad and say, why is, why is he doing this? What did he do? Well, it's something about Christus or Christ and, and the like. And they say, yeah, I have to read more about that. And you think, hey, God's up to something in my death here. The testimony, martyr means witness, actually. And so joy, and chomp. And then you, you get bit at the end. I, I talked to people. I was in Sudan. I was in Khartoum. And we talked to a guy. I talked to a guy who came from a Muslim family. Uh, and he had dreams. God reveals himself in dreams a lot in the Muslim world. Isa, who is in the Quran. And uh, anyway, he was terrified to go to death. It's like Freddy Krueger would show up or something like that. And the boogeyman would chase him every night, and he just dreaded going to, going to uh, sleep because the dream would get him. And uh, anyway, every night it was awful. And then one night he ran across the creek near the village and stepped out and stepping out of the brush on the side or the foliage was Jesus, Esau, and the boogeyman turned and ran away. And so he woke up and he said, I got to know more about Esau. He saved me from the boogeyman. And he did. And he came to accept Christ. His family turned him in to the police and they're questioning him because he's apostate now. And so they slugged him in the stomach. And the way he, the breath came out, it sounded a little bit like better in Arabic. I don't know what the word is, but somehow they, and they, oh, you're better than we are, you think? And the guy slugged him in the jaw, his chair flipped backward, he hit his head on the wall. And he told us that with a smile and a laugh. And here's a guy who'd been mistreated and given up his family, and he's just delighting in his Savior. And those are quite extraordinary things. I did a I did a book here on it's called Moral Apologetics. Did this years ago, and I talk about the splendor of the Christian ethic, the order of the Christian ethic, the splendor of the ethicists, the people, the people who write, you know, whether it's Lewis or Chesterton or whatever, as opposed to John Stuart Mill or some of these others, and then the splendor of the fruit, and the fruit is all over the place, just disproportionately great in terms of things they've done and you look at this and you say something's happening here i mean it's kind of like if there's smoke there's fire well i'm or if there's fire there's some combustion so i just think the narrative and the worldview is so much more plausible 
and you just have to knock yourself out to say, oh, you know, wrong tomb, he swooned, they took the body, the soldiers were bribed, you know, whatever, like, yeah, you think that's that's what explains this. All right, well, Mark, I think we're getting to the end here. It has been just a pleasure to have you on for both these episodes here. Uh, do you have anything that you want to leave us with? Any words of advice for police officers or maybe just other people who are listening to this podcast? Yeah, I mean, th- and by the way, thank you for just <laughs> talking to me. I'm always astonished when people even ask me to say silent prayer. So this is this is this is helpful. At the end of the last one, we talked a little bit about plodding along and just step stepping, stepping, stepping. And people are so ambitious and they're so frustrated if they don't make the next step and they hit a glass ceiling. And I was thinking about you know the fall when Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, and you're going to have this toil and pain and childbirth and this and that. And if one of the one of the angels had said on the way out, like, hey, you know, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life or, you know, have your follow your passion. And I'm thinking there's so much in life that it's just a matter of putting one foot ahead of the other. I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know what it's going to do for my career. I don't know if I'll be famous. I don't know if I'll be never heard of. But I do know this. Christ is risen. And he has given me this. And he's put this in my heart. And he's put this on my plate. And I'm going to address it with all my heart. Even as Paul would say, if you're if you're a slave, be the best slave and servant, you know, to the glory of God. Whatever state I find myself in, great. If if I'm high, if I'm low, I've been in situations where I made quite a bit of money. Been in situations where I'm cashing in annuity and poverty struck, and I'm scrambling around substitute teaching. It's all good. It's all good in Christ. And I just look at people who are torn up over material things and career and status and whether they've got this this spouse or that spouse. And, and it's such a, a sad kind of empty life. And, and I, you know, sometimes people do stuff and I think, what? And Sharon will remind me, my wife, she says, they're lost. They're lost. And they don't have that kind of, uh, that kind of perspective that gives them joy. All right. Well, thank you, Mark. Remember, if you have any questions or if you want to reach out to the podcast, you can feel free to email remainingsanepodcast at gmail.com. Once again, it's remainingsanepodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or X or whatever it's called at remainingsanepc. Have a blessed rest of your day.